I'd like to welcome everyone to another episode of the Business Science Magazine podcast. I'm here with Thor Flosasa. Did I uh, pronounce that correctly? You got it. Yep. Excellent. Excellent. So uh, we're lucky enough to have uh, Thor with us today, and I'd like to uh, introduce him properly. So here's a quick excerpt from uh, Thor's uh, bio. Thor has various learning and development positions at the Kellogg Company, uh, 12 for the last 10 years, and is currently the Director of Global Learning. He has successfully led large-scale L&D initiatives and plays the role of a performance consultant to ensure learning initiatives are closely aligned to and in support of business strategy and effective and continuous learning in the workplace. Originally from Iceland, Thor moved to the U.S. to pursue a graduate degree in psychology and graduated from Western Michigan University with a master's degree in IO psychology and a PhD in psychology with a focus on organizational behavior management and learning. Prior to that, Thor worked as a behavior therapist, implementing intervention programs for children with behavior problems, learning difficulties, autism, and other de uh, developmental disabilities. Thor is passionate about evidence-based and performance-driven learning solutions that are closely tied to defined business outcomes. He is also interested in exploring how innovations in L&D can impact organizations' ability to foster a thriving learning culture. So Thor, I was really excited to um, meet and talk with you today, and I, I thought it would be good if we could start off with your story. Um, where did it all begin? Um, how did you make the decision to move from Iceland over to the United States? Yeah, it kind of the, the, what the, the trigger for me was, was technically behavior analysis. So what, what, what I, I went to the University of Iceland where I got my bachelor's degree and, and during my time there, I really got into behavior analysis and, and, and gravitated towards that approach, philosophy, science, if you will. Um, and, and one thing led to another and I, I took on a, a job as a behavior therapist or, or implementing um, a kind of ABA therapy for, for kids with autism. And that kind of got the ball rolling. Um, really got into that. It was fascinating to have have see changes happen, uh, you know, through through the through the implementation of these programs and and seeing impact you you know we're having through through these uh, through these methods. Uh, and at some point, I, I really thought that I would kind of that would be my career. I would be doing some sort of uh, kind of more of a quote unquote clinical work with 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 um, with uh, with that population. But kind of when I looked at it, it was like, okay, thinking 20 years out, where do I see myself? And I couldn't really see where, you know, what, what, what my, my career path would look like because I saw myself doing one or two things, you know, maybe run a small consulting gig in this space or being a, a therapist, you know. So it, it, it was sort of limited the way I looked at it. So very passionate about learning, passionate about behavior analysis. So I said, okay, let's, let's shift gears here. And, and how does this apply in, the, in organizational settings, right? Um, and started to look around and, and, and I was aware of, of, you know, friends and around me had, had gone to the U S for, for, uh, graduate programs in behavior analysis. And, and I kind of got into more of, uh, interest being interested in OBM and, and decided to, uh, to apply for, uh, um, you know, a few programs here and ended up in Western Michigan, which is one of the, I would say probably the Mecca of OBM and, and a lot of behavioral, uh, analytic practices, I would say, and, and research and, and thought leaders. So, so that, yeah, so, so graduate school brought me to the U.S. and um, studied with, with a lot of, a lot of great, great people there. Uh, you know, Alice Dickerson, uh, 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 Eric Fox, Heather McGee, others that, that, um, that helped me kind of build my skill set and, 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 and kind of grow me into, into 
uh, who, who I am as a behavior analyst, I guess. Uh, I was fortunate enough, even on my, um, on my thesis committee, I had Jack Michael. So it was, wow. it was an honor to have him uh, part of my, part of my, my, uh, my education. So, um, and then uh, probably I think it was, it was two years into the, the PhD or one year into the PhD part of the program, I got an opportunity to join Kellogg in, in an internship capacity. And at the time they were, they were starting to implement more of, of um, uh, kind of e-learning and, and they were going online. This was 12 years ago and they were early in that. So I brought in some instructional design expertise and some technolo technology um, kind of practices and started, um, uh, started to build out, out some courses and, and programs. And one thing led to another, I've had now several opportunities, several different roles within the organization. Most of the time uh, it has been with some sort of a, uh, with a learning hat, with a learning focus in L&D or, or, or whether it's in sales or global business services and now in my current role as head of global learning. So it's, it's been, a, been a great, um, great journey so far. Uh, but again, it kind of started, you know, when you think about the trigger initially was, wow, this is fascinating, this science behind human behavior and these principles and I just got into it, but then, you know, I started more in the, in kind of the autism space, but eventually brought me to, you know, into corporate America. So who would have, who would have thunk, right? <laughs> well, I have to ask because, you know, you mentioned it a couple of times that you were really turned on by behavior analysis. And I, I felt the exact same way when I got into behavior analysis. Um, uh, I think like a lot of people, I got into psychology. I wanted to learn about myself and learn about my own behavior. And then I stumbled on behavior analysis by accident. So how did, you, um, how did you stumble upon behavior analysis and what turned you on with, with behavior analysis or behavior science? Yeah, there, there were a couple of uh, um, professors at the, at the University of Iceland who, uh, one of them is, is a behavior analyst, uh, Dr. Sira Dottir. Uh, she, is, she is probably the one who, who turned me on and, and I took some, uh, took kind of a, a basic, uh, kind of course in behavior analysis and then it took another one that was more around the methodology and research and designs and things like that um and and a couple of other folks who were really uh the way they kind of framed it up the way they explained it and some of the literature i got i, I got into was like wow this is something you can you can you know you, you have observable changes you have you have principles you have um approaches methods to really help make meaningful socially significant changes uh, and, and people's lives. So uh, it was just, it, it, it attracted me more than some of the more of a, kind of the, the, the cognitive approaches where you didn't have the, the, the tangibles, right? You, there was something missing there for me. But, but I, I still remember when I was really got into, you know, looking at research um, and seeing those changes that were happening and, 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 and they were valid and they were reliable uh, versus, you know, let's, let's, you know, have some, um, you know, Let's create some hypothetical constructs and generate some survey research around it. It was it was not my 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 area of uh, interest. So it, it's really the the data and the impact that uh, that that pulled me in. You know, you mentioned too that um, uh, that you didn't just have an interest in behavior science, but also an, uh, a more specific interest in organizational behavior management. So something I always like to ask all of our guests is how they define organizational behavior management, uh, because I feel like everybody functionally defines it the same way, but um, uses different terms. So I'm curious, yeah. how do you define organizational behavior management? Yeah, I'm probably not far off of the kind of the st standard definition, if there is one. It would be um, you know, a, a practical application of 
principles of behavior and systems analysis in organizational settings uh, with the goal of improving performance to solving business problems. That's probably how I would frame it up. And, and I guess it's, it's close to uh, others, but, but there are different versions of this, I guess, right? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, you can always tell um, who mentored who, because as soon as you said systems analysis and things like that, I'm thinking Heather McGee and DSAs and things like that. So there we go. Yep. Yep. Um, how do you feel like um, OBM differs from some of the other um, methodologies out there like IO psychology and things like that? I, I think it's just the, the I think I think all of the different areas claim some sort of scientific foundation, but I think I think behavior analysis brings that that you know very strong scientific foundation based on research. Uh, you know we have we have clear definitions of of what we're what we're of, of the subject matter right versus hypothetical constructs. Um, and for, for me, I think the OPM helps kind of helps cutting through the noise, if you, if you will. So sometimes I, I find myself in meetings with leaders and whether it's an HR leaders or business leaders, then they, and they, they have, you know, high level visions and, and talk about the future and then, okay, how, how do we get this done? Right. And then they start to throw out like all these vague terms around capabilities and this and that, but it never gets to the level of, okay, tell me, let's talk behavior here. Right? It's very hard for me to, you know, as, as a learning professional or an HR to action against things that it's not, it's very ambiguous, if you will. So I think for me, the, what OBM helps is, is really to, to cut through the noise and point to the levers that we have at our disposal to, to make meaningful change. And I think that is what probably the, 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 the differentiator. Um, yeah. Do you feel like, so I always felt, and it's interesting because so many behavior analysts went the same path, uh, like you did and like I did, where you start in therapy and then you move out into OBM and systems and things like that. Um, and when I started in behavior analysis, uh, which was about uh, 17 years ago now, I felt like the term behavior was bad. So it was associated with bad behavior and it was just, right. it wasn't a friendly term, especially in business. However, I've noticed that in the past few years, maybe four or five years, that so many different uh, uh, corporate organizations are opening up to that term, specifically in learning uh, um, L&D and uh, research and development. Technology is another big area where I see that it's opened up. Do you feel like uh, corporate America or uh, the corporate world in general is a little friendlier to our science and just behavior in general? I think that's a great point. That's, that's exactly how I feel, right? A few years ago, the behavior, you know, we, we, that was a term that, we, that I didn't use overtly a lot, right? But, you know, over the, especially with, with, with more, I'm not sure if it's kind of uh, people data that is driving some of this because now it's become readily available. Looking at skills, more looking at, you know, future work, you know, everything is changing, right? 50% uh, of jobs will be obsolete in the next, X years, I don't know, you know, so, so organizations are more and more like, okay, what do we need to do? What are the things that people need to learn? And, and what are the new skills and behaviors, you know, so that I, th I think I'm, we're, we're getting back to the point, like people are understanding the, the, the importance of being able to talk behavior and how do we, you know, change, build, you know, and, and support uh, behavior to support people in their, you know, and, and going through these dramatic radical transformations with, within, within business and, 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 and broadly speaking, globally. So 
I, I'm getting a lot of that. We, for example, we, um, we recently launched a new um, a competency model for, for our leaders or for everybody at Calligrilly. And competencies are essentially clusters and summary labels of behaviors, right? We get actually to a point and we're talking about developing people based on certain behaviors. Now we can argue how good those definitions are, but they go down to a level of describing certain actions, certain behaviors that are really, we can start to measure and we can start to, to build and, and, and help uh, uh, kind of facilitate the, the, you know, people growing those, those skills. So I, I would say that, yes, I'm, I'm talking behavior, using that word is, is perfectly okay. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's interesting too, because um, I can, and you can always tell where somebody, uh, the specialty uh, or the specialized area where somebody works because uh, you keep talking about um, learning and development and skills and uh, that's your focus right now. And like you said earlier that uh, you've always had a focus at Kellogg um, in learning and development or training. So I'd like to segue into um, corporate learning uh, for, for a few minutes and talk a little bit about instructional design. And some of the experience that I've had working in the area of instructional design over the course of the past couple of years is there's a huge focus on digital technology and not necessarily uh, behavior analytic technology or uh, learning methodologies. Um, so could you talk a little bit about that, some of the struggles that you've yeah. gone through? Have you noticed that as well? I, I have, that's interesting. I, I get probably contacted by you know, 30 plus vendors every week that are trying to sell us a platform, a digital solution to fix my problems. And then they throw out some data and like, we, we did this at this, you know, company XYZ and they got like 90% reduction in turnover and this and that and all these fancy, uh, very impressive numbers. There's typically not, you know, I, I, I do question them, uh, but, but there's a lot of focus on the, the, the shiny objects, the, the thing that is supposed to solve everything. But a lot of times when you, okay, yeah, interesting solution. Tell me more about where, where does this come from? How do you think about this from a, from a behavior change standpoint? What are the kind of the mechanisms? What's the research? And in some cases, yeah, people do have, you know, decide some, you know, neuroscience and, 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 and other things. But a lot of times I think, and I try to do this, I try to be cognizant of like, what are we trying to solve for? And, and we can't just throw out a, a cool digital platform we need to understand how that works in the context of the business environment, in the context of people's behaviors and what's, what's driving that. And, and I, I think all too often, right, you know, right, some, you know, I go to conferences and, and I, I think we sometimes move too far from what, when we talk about learning, what, what is actually happening and, and how do we define learning, right? It's very basic, but sometimes it gets to into too much of the activities that are supposed supposedly drive learning and enable learning, but doesn't always happen because to your point, the, 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 the kind of the methodology behind it and the, you know, it, it's not always there. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, do you find, and it's interesting that you were talking about those, um, those vendors. Uh, I, I'm not sure if you attend some of the learning conferences like uh, the association for talent development and training mag conferences. So I'll go to some of those uh, events and they have so many vendors there with uh, digital technology platforms like you were talking about. And I noticed a lot of them focus on uh, group statistics as opposed to individual behaviors. So is that a challenge that you run into on a regular basis? 
It, it is. And I've, I've, I'm very, uh, I'm an advocate for what I call in this term, like personalization of learning. I mean, it's, it's a, you know, everybody's talking about that, but what the, what does that truly mean? So it is, you know, it, it, you know, group, group statistics can, can help you sell things and it can help you get some, you can infer certain things from it. Okay. We're on the right path because we're seeing a trend here and with, with something, but at the end of the day, it's how do we break that down and take it down to the individual level? So, some of the things we're looking at now here at Kellogg is to how do we how do we get better data at the individual level, right? In terms of their engagement uh, with with certain learning activities, with ultimately their outputs and behavior change, which is very difficult to capture. Uh, but that's really what, what what I would like to see because you can say with your solutions that it's oh we're launching this program or platform technology. There's never going to be one size fits all. There is one size fits one, which kind of brings us back, which is the essence of, of, of behavior analysis is you need to be specific enough. Now I can tell you that we don't have, I mean, we, we do have a lot of kind of individual data, but we typically do aggregate them and, and, and share them out. But then the question is, you know, where does the data come from? Because a lot of, a lot of the data that, that um, uh, you know, in the research, when you look at, you know, a lot of the vendors, it's all survey based, right? They're just asking people and, and even what I find fascinating and is one of my pet peeves and people here laugh uh, when this comes up, I'm not a really big fan. And I, I you know, the 70-20-10 model for how we learn, it's like there's no foundation for that. You know, how they came up with that, there was like 40 years ago, 40 senior leaders at a company had them fill out a survey. To this day, people are still referring to that model uh, and there's nothing behind it. So. I think there's some, there's some kind of conceptually valid things in that. Yeah, not all learning happens through courses. You, there's a lot of exposure to others and interactions and on the job. Yes, I get it. But to say that there's research and there's, you know, because the foundation is very weak. So, so again, uh, individual versus group, it, it is challenging when, you know, when you're at a company that has 30,000 employees, right? How do you, how do you get, <laughs> get after that? But at the end of the day, if individuals have access to their own data, that can motivate, that can act as, as let's you know, motivating operations for ongoing learning. It can set up some, some reinforcers along the way. So if I as a learning have access to how I'm doing, I think that can be definitely be beneficial, but we I don't. That, yeah, I think that's a great point. And I, I wanted to use that as a uh, jump off point to uh, discuss the uh, LinkedIn uh, learning initiative uh, that you spearheaded. So mm -hmm. can you tell us, uh, tell us a little bit about that, why you decided to go with LinkedIn Learning and uh, how it's been going. Yeah, uh, it's 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 been uh, it's been a fun project. So again, really, what led us to to uh, deploy that across all of our salaried employees was we, you know, going back to the the future of work and the and the and how rapidly things are changing. So you know, a few years ago, and 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 kind of the traditional way of of providing learning solutions here at for the masses was you know we went through you know, identifying needs and going through the instructional design. And then, you know, six, seven months later, we launched a program and then we ran that for, for some time and then it got, became obsolete. And let's, let's go back to square one and do the next program, right? And, and that doesn't work, right? P things and, and, and the demand uh, for organization to be able to deliver learning solutions and meaning, having meaningful impact through them is, is, is changed. Going back to what I talked about, one size fits all, we wanted to make sure we had, we were able to provide, um, employees across the enterprise with something that they could, uh, that would tar be targeted for them. If they can have access to a massive uh, learning library and with some, some uh, simple 
um, and kind of rules built into the platform, they would get recommendations. Hey, you are in HR. These are some courses that are, and topics that are trending for your you know, profession. Hey, you have this title. Here are some things. You're at this company. So, so it's how do we, how do we cater to people's needs in the moment to, to, through some, again, through the platform in this case, they're able to say, you know, let me know what might be helpful. There are also some, some additional tools that allow us to see, you know, benchmark against industries. What skills and behaviors are trending and what are the courses against those that we can kind of recommend or, or, or push out? So we took a, a, a approach where it was not like provide this as a, hey, here's your library card, go and figure out what you need. We try to be a little bit, little bit deliberate and, and pre-curate courses and recommend based on uh, our business objectives and where we're at. But at, at the end of the day, it's about empowering the individual employees to, to find their paths and find what they, what they can benefit from. So it's, it's been, a, 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 you know, people embraced this because they didn't have much. So they were kind of starving for this content. And we're promoting the, the timeliness of learning, right? Again, going back to the old school model, what's, oh, I'm gonna sign up for a course and giving feedback. I sign up today, uh, the course is gonna be delivered uh, three months from now or two months from now. But guess what? I have my conversation with an employee next week or today, or, you know, I, I need it now. So how do we, how do we you know, do, the, do a better job of the immediacy of, of how you consume and learn, and then you can immediately apply it. So, so it goes to kind of um, go, the, the point of, of individualizing it, if you will. Yeah, I love that. I love uh, personalized learning. That's uh, that's nice. I might uh, steal that phrase and use that. It's, it's um, used all over, so go, go right ahead. <laughs> um, uh, before we get off that topic, could you talk a little bit about the, um, the four-stage process that I read about? So um, ad hoc, formal, agile, and integrated learning. Yeah, so it, it's, it, you can view this as our kind of maturity. Right. And, and you have if you're in HR, if you're in, you know, various or, or you're in IT, whatever organizations tend to have like there's some mature. This is our maturity model from from where we are today, from where we want to go in the next five, six years. What, what, what our strategy is pushing us towards. Right. So, um, you know, I, I just you know, looked at the literature and, and what's out there and, and, and available and and kind of borrowed from from some of that in, in terms of defining if we're gonna move the needle on, on, on getting to where we want to be with, with which is a, a learning culture with, with uh, truly that's integrated. You have data-driven learning that, that pushes content to you when you need it. And it's, it's all that, that, that kind of, kind of almost like futuristic stuff that we would like to get to. That's the, 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 the end or that fourth stage that we have what we call integrated learning. But we need to understand where we are today, right? We provide courses, we do some basic tracking, we know that we're have maybe having some impact, blah, 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 blah. Then we move into more of a, a, a little bit more advanced stage. And then we get, get more and more sophisticated and, and um, um, effective, efficient, I guess. So this, this whole four stage was more like, how do we define each stage of our kind of quote unquote journey? So that was really the, the reason behind it. It's, it's, it's basically just a maturity model from, from, from going to here basic to going to something sophisticated that allows us to put together strategies. Okay, if we're gonna move from one phase to the next, what do we need to do? What's the technology? What's the strategy? What are the principles and guidelines that allow us to, to progressively move through those um, stages? Excellent. I, I'd like to take a quick left turn here. Um, you've mentioned something a couple of times. Um, you talk, um, you said, talked about the future of work and you talked about where some trends are going in the future that uh, a lot of jobs are gonna be made obsolete uh, what are some of the trends that you see in uh, instructional design and learning and development 
Uh, where do you think those industries are going to be in 10 or 15 years? Yeah, I, th I think, um, you know, obviously going back to technology, right? We were talking about it's, it's a lot of, there's a lot of hype, there's a lot of solutions, but I do truly think that, that you know, um, you know, artificial intelligence and data and easier access um, is, is truly going to revolutionize this. Um, so I, I, I think, you know, when we talk about learning development, I, I think it is um, learning to be able to find its way to you when you need it. So, so imagine if you have this, this, you know, whatever hub or learning space or whatever, you know, that system will know who you are where you are, what your preferences are in terms of when you learn, how you learn, uh, what type of materials you t typically engage with, uh, what your development plan is, what your next role is, you know, all these data. I mean, it's, it's fascinating because you can, you can glean or you can get insights. The system could get some insights into what you would need, what's beneficial. And that would be based on some other data streams about effectiveness of that training above them. And then it, boom, here you go. This is what you need in the moment. So I think it is, is having smart systems that can that can better uh, position learning, better position, or we say learning, or performance kind of support solutions that will kind of move you along the way. So you don't, don't have to do a lot of digging. And I wonder what I need. And now you could do a lot of the searching because the truth is that today people are spending a lot of time just figuring out what do I need, right? What's what's coming? What's What are the skills? But I think the big, big change we hopefully will see is that your, the, the, the technology, the wonder of technology will, will help you uh, be more effective and efficient in, in, in learning. Um, so I think th those are some of the, the, the trends I'm seeing is, is just how, how technology will, will revolutionize. And it's not going to be only learning. It might also be kind of personal data that feeds into it. And it's like big data stuff that's going to have, have an impact. Yeah, I've heard a lot of... Um... I, I attend a lot of uh, insurance company um, conferences uh, for different reasons with regards to uh, applied behavior analysis therapy. And they talk about this move from generalized medicine to precision medicine. And if I'm hearing you correctly, it sounds like learning is really gonna move from some of those group statistics that we were talking about to more of what you were discussing, personalized learning. Exactly, I, th I think that is gonna be, I mean, we're already seeing some early indicators of, of that with, with people getting, getting stuff uh, based on who they are, where they are, um, uh, what they like, what they don't like, uh, all these kind of, uh, it's, it's, it's fascinating. Now, it's, there, there's always that kind of ethical, you know, how do we, and then what, what do we do with the data? So that, that's, that's another, another topic. But, but I think, yeah, it's going from, from kind of the generic to truly what is close to what we, you know, when we talk behavior analysis, what, what's right for you. Right? It's looking at what meeting you where you're at and, and, and take you from there. So, so that is, you know, I think it's, it's, it's principles of our science that, that is kind of, you know, it, it maps or matches up nicely against that. Yeah, I think that would be so cool if, I mean, I guess cool and as you alluded to, maybe dangerous ethically if the system knew what your reinforcers were, what type of schedule of reinforcement you should, um, your behavior should be on the whole bit. So exactly. exciting and scary at the same time. Yeah. Yep, for sure. Um, how did that, uh, now that we mentioned the term precision, um, I don't know if this is a great segue or not, but um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with um, a book called uh, Precision Selling by Joe Leipel. Um, he's a, he was a behavior analyst and he wrote a great book called Precision Selling and he took a uh, behavior analytic uh, viewpoint to training sales teams. 
And I know that's where you started uh, at Kellogg. So can you talk a little bit about your experience training sales teams, specifically in retail sales and how you infused OBM into those yeah. uh, practices? So that was really fun. So I spent about four, four years or three or four years in our sales learning development group. And that was, that was paradise for a behavior analyst because there were like three or four of us or four or five of us with PhDs and from Western, right? So we were all there together. So you can imagine the, the fun we're having because we can really address learning opportunities from, from that behavior analytic approach. And our programs were, were built with that and, you know, based on that, if you will. And we had some, in my, I have huge respect for, for them. You know, the folks I worked with, I learned so much and we just, we're a great group. Um, from a retail sales perspective, it was really, you know, it started as, started, we, we broke it down for, and let's, let's talk about the role of a retail sales representative, for example. We need, just need to identify what are the, what are the behaviors that makes up a successful, make up a successful retail sales representative. So it, the, the starting point was really to mapping out that process, right? Um, we just, what, what happens and what's a day in the life of like, right? We, we just had uh, individuals who were uh, senior in the retail sales organizations, VP, all the way down to the folks who would do our merchandising. Spent two or three days with them in a room and map out the whole process. First you do this and then here are the skills and here are the things you do, here are the behaviors. So we had this massive process map of a day in the life of. Now then we took that and converted that, converted that into a week long um, highly immersive simulated training uh, or learning experience, right? So what we did is, you know, there was there was there were a few days, um, you know, early in the week where we actually did some baseline. We took generated some baseline, took some baseline data, with giving people a, a, a store called challenge, right? We give them some promotional information, some brand information. Here's information on your store, um, so on and so forth. And here you go, go and sell. And we had actually built a, um, well, the team had built a grocery store simulator. So we had a grocery store on site. We had uh, kind of high fidelity environment with the back room where a coach would sit and observe on video uh, on, on a screen because we had video uh, cameras all throughout the store. And he could also communicate with the person who was going through the challenge. Wow. About something, feedback in the moment. The person was able to ask questions that they needed help, things like that. So highly, um, highly immersive experience. If they were in the, they were in their, 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 their actual work environment, right? It was not simulation in a classroom or, or some, some um, manufacturer. It was, it was, they had product there, they had backroom, they had all the equipment. So we could simulate the, the day pretty, pretty well. So that we did the day one thing and just to see, and we had very specific behavioral criteria on what are they doing? And we set the bar to, you know, by the end of the week, the week they need to reach this point, right? They need to 80% or whatever criteria we had. And then the week was all about there was classroom, there was interactions, there were, and one thing I was, I was very proud of from a, from a behavior analytics standpoint, we had some fluency training built in there. Because some of these skills were um, being able to sell in, a, in an incremental display or selling something new to a store manager. And we identified through our data, uh, after having run a few of these sessions, is that people were struggling. You know, they, they were not fluent enough to be able to be, answer objections in the moment. So we had like kind of uh, fluency uh, kind of building elements as part of the program. Um, and then towards the end of the week, people were actually giving us another store called challenge and they needed to pass with a certain, certain criteria. So they were on their own in that environment that by the way, they had practiced all week. And, and um, interesting to say, but actually uh, last week I got an email from a gentleman who came through this program seven years ago. 
He was just letting me know that um, uh, he was moving on to a different company, but he was actually attributing a lot of his success with, with Kelly because he had progressed to that training program. He said it was, it was transform, transformational, right? To, to actually go through something where it was designed around particular skills and behaviors that showed him actual results, right? They were able to complete that, they were able to sell in successfully. So, so that, that whole kind of simulation-based training with fluency elements, with really um, well-defined criteria, I think reflecting on my career at Kellogg was probably the most fun I've ever had because you were seeing a really, really meaningful change happen over the course of a week and just, you know, getting success stories from people after having, after they left. So um, really rewarding for, for us to, to, to have this program. And we ran it for, for, for several years. Um, so very successful, but it was, you know, to be honest, it was expensive because you fly people in and then you, you had to have a lot of facilitators and coaches. So it is the ideal I think for, in my, in my uh, opinion, ideal way of train, because you can put them in a real, a real environment, give them immediate feedback and coaching as they go through it. But again, it, it, it does take some, some, um, some resources to, do, to make that happen. Absolutely, and you know, I, I was really excited to talk to you about this because when I was an undergrad and in graduate school, the way I pay, paid my bills was I worked retail sales selling cell phones at cell phone companies and cell phone plans and things like that. Um, so I, I wanted to ask about some of the uh, unique challenges um, that come into play with regards to retail sales specifically. So I would imagine it'd be difficult to do uh, in vivo feedback, things like that, if you've got a customer right in front of them, things like that. So can you talk a little bit about the challenges of uh, retail sales versus other sales? Yeah, so I, I think, you know, True, it is, is challenging to, to do and, and, and simulate some of those. And, and the way we got around with our simulations is we brought in retired Kellogg direct sales directors to actually play the role of the customer. So we, we, we created those, those situations because you, you can't do, do that. Now, some of the challenges is, you know, there is relatively, compared to other roles, you know, relatively high turnover, right? So, so whatever training, whatever, you know, skill building you're doing, you need to have a program that can really get people up to speed quickly. Um, other challenges, obviously, you're, you're geographically dispersed with your with your folks, with your learners, right? How do you how do you reach them? How do you give them the attention they need? Um, and and you know some of the approaches we also and this was after I left, but to have also equip managers to be better coaches, to be better uh, mentors, and really spend time with them in the store, role model some of the some of the behaviors and in interaction with decision makers with the customers. So. Um, so yes, yeah, so some of some of those are just kind of challenges that are kind of kind of logistical in nature, if 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 you will. But uh, but yeah, I remember Turner was one of them, and and um, it's it's a demanding job. It's physically demanding for people to go out, you know, store to store, and there's merchandising involved. There's um, there's a physical aspect to the job. So so those would be some of them that that come to mind. I would imagine, yeah, and I, I imagine I remember there being a lot of physical challenges as a retail sales associate because you're on your feet the whole day. Yes. Uh, constantly moving around and uh, there was a lot of uh, I remember at some of the stores that I worked at they had requirements of um, the amount of seconds uh, from when somebody walks in the door to the time that you greet them so you have to greet them within a certain period of time and then you had a script that you would have to go through did you script a lot of those sales uh, calls or did you work on generalization a little bit how did you how did you work that? Yeah, that's so we had we, we worked on the generalization piece. So we had a lot of 
because we had a, you know, a particular model, right? So when you're engaging with the stakeholders, here's the spark process. So the S stood for, you know, start the conversation. And then we had some conversation starters, right? These are great, you know, open-ended questions you can use. So we provided a lot of kind of prompts around each of the step in the process, right? You get to, um, you know, um, you know, present your facts and, and, and articulating some things and overcoming objections. And, and for that, we really wanted to make sure that there, it wasn't scripted per se, but we gave them a model, right? It gave them kind of heuristic or, or, or kind of a process to go through with some, with some suggested, um, um, you know, phrases and, and, and keywords. But then again, that's where, you know, it, it, it's, it's hard to navigate those conversations because the responses you get are different. So if you want to, you know, you, you can't, I mean, it's, it's, it's where generalization comes in, right? You need to be able to generalize how you're going to respond to objections or questions or things like that. And what helped us through that was, again, adding some, some fluency building in, right? So if you come back at me with, you know, I'm not going to buy this because of X. I'm not going to buy this because of Y or Z or whatever objection there is, we need to make, make sure they were equipped to handle them and overcome them. And that's why, you know, we had kind of rapid fire practices and, and really getting them to a point they could do it, do the overcome these objectives and, or, or respond correctly in, in their sleep almost, excuse me. So, um, so yeah, that was, that was, um, that was interesting and fun when we had identified, you know, they're not really, they can respond, but they're, they're hesitating. And there's always this delay from that objection until they think through something. We need to, we need to reduce that latency and just really get them uh, on their, up on their toes and, and able to respond quickly. You know, ever since I got into OBM, uh, I, I see everything in my life as a balanced scorecard and uh, the different measures that you look at. And when I was in retail sales, we would have uh, some stores had specific uh, numbers that we would have to hit, a quota that we would, we would have to hit. And then other stores would have a quota plus how we got to that quota. So they didn't want any shady sales practices. So did you ever focus on that? Not just, you know, the sales quotas themselves, but how they obtained their numbers. Yeah. So we can, I can also probably speak about this from a broader Kellogg perspective, broader organization is we, we talk about exactly the what, right? You're getting true numbers, but we also talk about the how. So for example, from a performance management standpoint, and this applies in, in sales and it applies in, you know, all, everywhere, right? We're consistent with this. So you set certain goals for the year and are you meeting them? Yes or no. But then for your ratings and for your company, you know, your, your bonus and all that, we factor in, how did you get there? Did you use, did you do that in an ethical manner? You know, did you, are you living our Kellogg values and demonstrating our core competencies and, and you're doing them, doing them the right way. So it's not only about that outcome, that number, right? Yes, I hit my quota or I improved or whatever. Managers also need to be able to say, yeah, how they did this is, is, is you know, I'm, I understand what that was and I can, I can see the full picture, um, which obviously can, in certain areas, like if you're in sales or something, you know, there, there, there are temptations, right? I can cut corners or I can do something that questionable. So we want to make sure we, we hold people accountable for not only the results, but also how they get there. How did you, uh, so one of the struggles that I see uh, in my consulting life is when we talk about ethics is how to measure ethical performance. So how would you measure whether or not a sales representative sold ethically? So <laughs> that's a great question. We're actually, so in our, in our performance management, how we tee that process up and how we prepare managers to do that, we have certain 
I would say they're they're not specific, but we have some guidelines around the how, right? So so it's it's not like you know the guidelines are yeah did did they meet the the goal and then we just add that that how on top but it's more subjective at that point we give them guidelines right did they apply are they living the the k values are there any concerns about you know what they did so the the metric is you know it ultimately rolls up into a performance rating as a manager i'm not going through and and on each goal or each behavior i'm not saying ethical or not we, we don't get to that granular level but we had a very high subjective level i'd say setting expectations like think about this think about the how and do you have concerns and if you have concerns it may impact or should impact the rating of that employee but getting measuring ethical behavior um we do have other processes through our kind of legal and compliance part you know team that they they send out some some you know code of conduct and some questionnaires that kind of gauge the organization overall are, are they seeing things that they you know might be ethically you know uh Know, questionable or things like that. So there are other avenues of gauging that, but I would not be comfortable saying, yeah, we, we, we got this. I know exactly how to do that, but we don't. <laughs> but we try with, with at least setting some expectations. Yeah, I think a lot of people struggle with that. I, sorry, I know that was a tough question there. But no, it's, it's a good question. A lot of people struggle, yeah. 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 Um, so uh, one more thing about uh, retail sales quickly is I've noticed a shift in reference to training and sales uh, industries where there's a shift now from uh, brick and mortar retail sales trainings to online sales where people are selling via virtual chat like we're doing right now. Do you see that same trend occurring? I've, I've also heard that now there's a, a trend of people going back to retail. Um, so where do you see that um, happening? Yeah, so I haven't been super close to our sales operations and, and sales team for the last probably three, four years. What I'm, we are seeing as e-commerce is the big thing, right? Every, you know, we, we, we're building a lot of skills and building out teams that, that handle that specifically. So we, we have, you know, experts in that. How do, we, how do we engage the consumer? How do we engage the, the customers through those channels? So there is a huge shift to, to, you know, you have to win in e-commerce if you're going to survive. That's, that's just the way it is, right? But then again, to your point, yes, some are going back to kind of more brick and mortar because how, what's the experience? What do you want to provide? What's your brand? What do you stand for? So in some cases, you, you need to have that in place. But I think probably 95, 99% of organizations who sell some sort of services or products, they have an online presence and they need to be able to sell through, through that. Um, and how they do it, 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 it differs. But I think in, in our case and other, other uh, organizations in this space, you know, everybody's going after this thing, right? Because we, um, you know, not only your, your you know, grocery shopping, right? You can get everything shipped to your door now. And, and, and the whole kind of the whole channel or the kind of, if you want to call it, you know, supply chain of from you ordering something and getting it to the, you know, that is, that has changed dramatically. Um, so it's, it's, it's a, it's, it's a must have, I think, if you're in, if you're in sales these days. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I see that a lot now where I found myself shopping on Amazon for food. Uh, and I've yeah. never done anything like that before. Right. So I would imagine there's a lot of challenges around making sure that uh, there's pictures of the ingredients labels and things like that. Yeah. And I've been in some meetings internally and, and some, some big kind of sales conferences where they, where they're talking about kind of the, how do you make sure that your, you know, your picture floats to the, you know, gets in front of people because they're not walking a physical environment where they will technically be, have the ability to see everything. You can't see everything on Amazon. 
So as again, going back to our, what we talked about earlier on kind of personalization, how does the system know who you are and, and how, to, how, they, how to cater to your needs? So um, very challenging, but, but a fascinating uh, space to be in. Great, I'd like to, um, before we close, uh, and I'd like to get to um, what you're currently working on uh, in a few minutes, but I'd like to ask one more question about uh, learning and development. Um, do you ever run into situations, so I, I see a lot of the time, I, and I think we see this in society in general, where something bad happens and then the immediate uh, suggestion is they need to be trained better. So it's always, there needs to be better training. Uh, I, I watch a lot of sports and they always say, oh, well, they need to coach them up. Uh, they need to uh, add more training here, add more training there. Do you run into circumstances um, at Kellogg uh, where training isn't the answer? All the time. And to be honest, probably in the majority of, of cases where we have performance gaps. Um, it is a knee jerk for, for people and for leaders to, you know, I get so many calls and emails like, hey, we have an opportunity or we need to fix this. We need to train the problem away or we need to train people to be. And it makes sense because you're observing somebody and they're not doing what they're supposed to do. And we got to train them. Right. <laughs> but one thing that I'm tr that I've tried always to to do is to coach the our, our learning teams, my team. And, and leaders also is to think, think outside of that, right? It's really using, if we go to, back to OPM, is, is Tom Gilbert's behavior engineer model, or you know what, what Carl Binder has now updated into kind of the six boxes, right? That is kind of the way I think about everything I do. So I have, I have certain models in my, my head and certain frameworks, some, some rule-governed behavior going on there with, with how do I approach, how do I take in, you know, how do I, how do I manage an intake process? So if, if, if you are a, an OBM -er or a learning professional or HR, you need to understand kind of the, the bigger context and, and have something like those tools I mentioned or the behavior diagnostic checklist. And, you know, we, we OBMers, we have a lot of those tools to get you to where you need to focus. Is it a matter of, you know, better expectations, um, clarifications? Is it a feedback element? Is it a tool element? Is it, you know, uh, individual kind of capacity, you know, mental, physical? What is it? So what we try to do is to make sure that we have that intake and kind of check of, are we getting to the solution we need? Do we need just a quick job aid? Do we need to, you know, make sure that tool is not breaking every time that people need to use it? And that's driving us. It has nothing to do with training. Training obviously is, is often a critical component, but, but you need to do that then in conjunction with the other things. So if I, you know, if we're approached in learning and said, hey, we need to build this skill here, we need to think about the other training component but what are all the other elements that, that contribute? What are all the environmental factors that we can influence, right? Whether it's building then capability of, or, or skills for the managers of the people that are going through this, or again, improving the technology and the tools. And so it's, it's to answer your question, yes, we get those questions all the time where give me the training to, to, to solve my problem. But you know, we always need to kind of time up, let's talk, right? Let's see what's going on. Do you have some data? Can I, can we interview people too? Can we observe? Can we see what's really going on before we take the training route? Do you find that you run into uh, policy or regulatory uh, roadblocks when it comes to training where I, I like you, uh, like we talked about earlier, I started uh, my, my professional behavior analysis life working in uh, homes for adults with uh, special needs and working in the therapy realm. And a lot of the times we would run into government regulatory uh, roadblocks where we'd say, okay, we think um, if we make these changes, like, and we would do like a dirty process map 
uh, being before I knew what a process map was, I would do it. And I would show me like, listen, you know, if we make some changes here and make some changes there, it would really make a difference. But there would be policies and regulations that would stipulate that we would have to train people on certain things. And it would go back to that notion of there's a problem. Okay, well, you need to train them. And it was just a box that needed to be checked. And as long as that box was checked, everybody was okay. So do you ever run into those policy or government regulation issues? We, we, we do. And that's mostly in our kind of hours, which is, I mean, for all the right reasons, I guess, is, you know, safety, right? Everybody needs to go through this. And recently, we, I helped a little bit with, with pushing out um, kind of a safety training for 30,000 employees that was just delivered, you know, face to face. And, and, and there is also around the legal and compliance, you know, all the kind of ethical stuff, you know, that, that, that is a lot of the check the box because yes, uh, uh, an agency or federal authority, some, you know, requires you to be able to, if they walk in and you need to be able to show that people have been trained on, on, on this stuff. Um, our, our manufacturing environment, right. That's heavily, I mean, it has to be, we're, we're in food, you know, that, uh, and, and we do have, you know, very, very uh, powerful teams here and, and, and a lot of expertise on how we manage safety overall. And it's not only training, but sometimes, yes, training is the box you need to check. Um, sometimes we also may have, you know, unions that, that become part of the, the challenges with, with this or over in Europe, we have work councils that if you're going to implement something, you need to go through all that, that, that uh, rigor of vetting and, and things like that. So, so yeah, sometimes it's check the box uh, just to make sure we you know. Yep, we did, and we told them. So don't blame me. <laughs> yeah, take takes um, the responsibility away from you, and, and and to to some extent. Absolutely. Um, so uh, I wanted to wrap things up by uh, just asking you a little bit about uh, what you're working on next, and if you've got any public appearances or talks or panels that you're going to be on or anything like that. But I'd like to start off with uh, what are you working on next at uh, Kellogg or professionally in general. Yeah, I've uh, got several projects going on. One of them is, is um, very exciting. So we're actually, I'm, I'm, I'm leading a, a project that we're implementing kind of new training process structure uh, and certification of, of all of our um, operators in our 50 plus plants globally. So how do we make sure that, you know, everybody we hire in to make our food goes through um, the right, um, goes through the right training and is getting the right feedback and coaching and is signed off on observable behaviors, right? Because before that we say you're qualified, they need to be able to show that. So we're implementing a process that lay, lay some technology on top of that to make sure that, uh, you know, we have better, better visibility to, you know, qualifications, who, who, who should be able to, you know, who's, who's qualified to do the job and who hasn't been trained right now. We do have processes, but they're somewhat fragmented. They're not enabled by technology. We have limited visibility. So that, that's been a lot of, lot of fun to go and work with the supply chain side of the business to, to get this stood up because they're, they're, you know, the culture within supply chain is different from, let's say, marketing and others. So it's, you're always learning more about, um, about how we operate and how, how you need to do differently or not differently when you, when you approach different audiences. So that's another big thing. We're also um, moving more off our training into virtual spaces, right? We, you know, we, we have some um, new uh, first-time people manager training that is fully online through through e-learning, through uh, virtual interactive sessions. We're also converting our uh, onboarding program. So when we, you know, regardless of where you are in the Kellogg world, if you're joining us in Singapore or Mexico or Michigan, you know, we're building an experience that's going to be consistent. You can go through the same, um, same things and, and activities that will get to, 
um, to to know the things you need to know, do the things you need to do, and 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 get the 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 feeling that we'd like to create as you join the company. So doing those things at scale is what we've really been focusing on because again, overall, we've been moving from we are, we are moving from highly uh, or, or very resource heavy approaches to everything. Bring people together, they fly in, so I'm like, but now we we can't do that because if we're hiring thousands of people every year, who's gonna who's gonna pay for everything? Who's gonna facilitate everything who's going to, you know, so now we're, we're being smarter with that. So several projects that is kind of helping us get scale um, uh, with, with cost effective cost of, you know, and, and, and efficient solutions. So those are, those are some of them uh, that I'm, I'm, I'm working on. That's and it's great too, because you sound so passionate about it. You've been working at Kellogg basically since uh, graduate school. Um, and yeah. seeing that type of retention is uh, uh, really fantastic because there's so much turnover at so many different industries. Um, I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask about nutrition a little bit. So uh, the reason I'm bringing that up is uh, recently I went, um, I went through uh, the keto diet with my girlfriend and uh, we've, and she's a behavior analyst as well. So we've been tracking all of our measurables and things like that. So from a training perspective, working in the food industry, do you regularly uh, focus on trainings on subject matter expertise and new things that are coming out. So a lot of boxes now say things like gluten-free or non-GMO, things like that. Is there a big focus on that now? There's a huge, I'm, I'm not directly involved in that, but we have, um, there's a huge, huge focus at Kellogg in our R&D and, and across the business on, 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 on we're, we're a food company, right? And, and looking at, you know, whether it's plant-based protein, microbiome it's really getting into the science of food and we've made some big investments and and have some focus areas on how do we how do we get better at that you know we've we've uh, our products are, are continually being evolved whether it's you know less sugar more protein more um, the whole grains you know all that stuff it's, there's there's a lot of focus on that uh, overall uh, we're investing heavily in our um, we, we actually one of our brands is Morningstar Farms which you know uh, veggie burgers and and, and, and plant-based uh, kind of meat, meat substitutes. So, so we're really, uh, over the past few years, it's been kind of refocusing on how we started as a company. W.K. Kellogg founded the company as a, it's a health food company, right? And, and we've really been, been, been focusing on getting back to those roots and, and being, being uh, cognizant of, of, of what we, you know, how we, how we create our food and what, what goes into it. That's fantastic. Uh, that's great that you have mission alignment uh, from the very beginning, uh, uh, the inception of the company till all the way now. So I, I, that's, that's fantastic. Yeah. Um, so uh, Thor, it's been great having you. Uh, thank you so much for doing the interview. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. I uh, got to learn a little bit about uh, sales and learning and development in, uh, uh, in the retail sales business and in the food industry. So uh, we hope that our uh, audience enjoys it as much as I did. So thank you for joining us. And um, we'll, uh, we'll be talking to you soon. Absolutely. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Adam. Greatly appreciate it.